With its imposing stones and intricate architecture, this structure has stood as a testament to human ingenuity and skill for millennia. Its construction occurred during the Neolithic and Bronze Age periods, making it one of the most fascinating and best-known archaeological sites in the world. Not only that, but it has been intrinsically linked to folklore, myth and the paranormal since the dawn of its recorded history. So tonight, as the summer solstice draws closer, join me for the first of a two-part Stonehenge special. episode 40 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we turn our gaze to a world-famous structure and ask, how haunted is Stonehenge? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. The prehistoric monument of Stonehenge is located on Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire. Its construction potentially dates back as far as 5,000 years and it continues to captivate the imagination of anybody who lays eyes on the iconic stone circle, whilst at the same time baffling historians and researchers who can't quite agree on when or why it was built. It is one of the oldest and most perplexing structures anywhere on the planet, and almost certainly the most ancient I'll ever cover here on How Haunted. Stonehenge was constructed in several phases, with the very first monument on the site being an early Henge monument, built in around 3000 BC. This was a circular ditch with an inner and outer bank, enclosed an area of around 100 metres in diameter, with two entrances. This was a very early iteration of a Henge monument. In the late Neolithic period, in around 2500 BC, the unique stone circle was added, with two types of stones being set up in the centre of the monument. The stones used being the large sarsens, which are 7 feet tall and each weigh around 20 tonnes, and the smaller blue stones. The sarsens were erected in two concentric arrangements, an inner horseshoe and an outer circle, and the blue stones were set up between these in a double arc. Probably at the same time that the stones were being set up in the centre of the monument, the sarsens close to the entrance were raised together with the four station stones on the periphery. Then at some point between 2470 and 2280 BC, the side ditches and banks of a ceremonial avenue were dug from Stonehenge to the River Avon, 
a distance of almost two miles, which is three kilometres. The width of the avenue varies, being around 60 feet or 18 metres at its narrowest point, and around 115 feet or 35 metres at the widest. It ends at a small henge on the bank of the Avon. This small henge, measuring 100 feet or 30 metres in diameter, was built after the bluestones at its centre were removed. Around the first 1600 feet, which was 500 metres, of the avenue from Stonehenge are aligned towards the summer solstice sunrise and the winter solstice sunset. Coincidentally, the avenue was built upon pre-existing natural chalk ridges which share this alignment. This came to light during excavations in 2008. Interestingly, less than two miles to the northeast of Stonehenge stands Durrington Walls, which is the largest known Neolithic henge in the United Kingdom. Durrington Walls is part of the larger Stonehenge landscape. It is circular and measures around 1,640 feet, which is 500 metres in diameter, and it is surrounded by a ditch of around 58 feet or 17 metres wide which is further surrounded by an outer bank made of quarried chalk and measures around 131 feet or 40 metres wide by 3.3 feet or 1 metre high. It was built in around 2500 BC and it's believed it was predominantly used for ritual and religious ceremonies. It has an avenue similar to Stonehenge around 100 feet or 30 metres wide and 560 feet or 170 metres long running from the Southern Circle to the River Avon, whereas the avenue at Stonehenge is aligned to the summer solstice sunrise and the winter solstice sunset. The Durrington Avenue is reversed, aligning to the summer solstice sunset, while the Southern Circle faced the winter solstice sunrise. This alignment raises the possibility that Stonehenge and Durrington were built as complementary halves of a single complex, separated by the River Avon. Stonehenge was built on a site that was already special. In the Mesolithic period, in around the year 8000 BC, pits were dug and pine posts were erected, incredibly close, only 650 feet or 200 metres to the northwest of where Stonehenge would be constructed 5,000 years later. This was 10,000 years ago, and there's no other known monuments of this nature built by prehistoric hunter-gatherers like this anywhere else in northwestern Europe. In the area surrounding Stonehenge are a huge number of ancient burials. Within three miles, which is five kilometres, there have been 17 long barrows found, which are burial mounds, and two cursus monuments, which are long enclosures, all of which date back to some time between 4000 and 3000 BC. Then in the early Bronze Age, with carbon dating suggesting a period of between 2200 and 1700 BC, hundreds and hundreds of round barrow burials were built in the area around Stonehenge. This is one of the greatest concentration of round barrows anywhere in Britain. Many groups of barrows seem to have been built in areas that would have been considered sacred at the time, being situated on hilltops visible from Stonehenge itself such as those on the King Barrow Ridge. It's possible that Stonehenge may be the largest late Neolithic cemetery in the United Kingdom. The Aubrey Holes, which are 56 pits, named for John Aubrey, who was one of the first to examine the site with a scientific purpose in 1666. These have had cremations buried within them, with around 64 individual cremations being found so far. The purpose of the Aubrey Holes is unknown, with suggestions that they once held timber poles, whereas others claim they held stones which were later removed. At some point between 1800 and 1500 BC, one of the last prehistoric activities at Stonehenge was carried out, when what are now known as the Y and Z holes were dug. These are the stone settings of two rings of concentric pits. Their purpose is another of Stonehenge's mysteries but researchers claim that it's possible that they were dug with the aim of rearranging the existing stones, but this never happened. Moving into the Iron Age, in around 750 BC, a hilltop fort was constructed just over a mile east of Stonehenge, overlooking the River Avon. Today, it is known by the name Vespasian's Camp. 
The Romans came to Britain in around 43 AD. An archaeological evidence suggests that Stonehenge may have become a place of ritual importance to them. In the 6th century, the town of Amesbury was established at a crossing point on the Avon, around three miles from Stonehenge. This period of Stonehenge is lost to history, but we do know that the area surrounding Stonehenge was used to graze sheep. The earliest surviving texts referencing Stonehenge date from the medieval period, and the first recorded mention of Stonehenge was in the 8th century in a work by the historian Bede, known today as St Bede, or the Venerable Bede. He spent his life at the monastery in Jarrah, just to the south of the River Tyne in the northeast of England, and he was the greatest of all of the Anglo-Saxon scholars. There are sporadic mentions of Stonehenge from that date onwards, with a notable entry in around 1136, in Geoffrey of Monmouth's epic work, Historia Regum Britanniae, which means the history of the kings of Britain. He wrote of Merlin's magical involvement in the construction of Stonehenge. This would largely become the accepted version of events by the people of Britain until the 16th century. In the 14th century, references to Stonehenge and text became more frequent, as well as drawings and paintings of how it appeared at the time. In 1540, King Henry VIII confiscated Stonehenge and the surrounding land from the monks at Amesbury Abbey. He in turn gave the estate to Edward Seymour, the first Earl of Hartford, and it changed hands several times in the centuries that followed, until it was bought in 1824 by the Antrobus family of Cheshire. In 1897, the Ministry of Defence bought a huge area of land on Salisbury Plain, which they would use for army training exercises, and to this day, there's a significant military presence all around Stonehenge. Meanwhile, the introduction of the turnpike roads and the railway to Salisbury brought many more visitors to Stonehenge. From the 1880s, various stones had been propped up with timber poles, but concern for the safety of visitors grew when an outer sauce and upright and its lintel fell in 1900. The then owner, Sir Edmund Antrobus, with the help of the Society of Antiquaries, organised the re-erection of the leaning tallest trilithon in 1901. In 1915, Stonehenge was put up for sale, along with a 30-acre triangle of adjoining land. This sale was being made by Sir Cosmo Gordon Antrobus, following the death of his brother, Sir Edmund. Edmund had been a lieutenant in the Grenadier Guards, and was killed in Belgium in October 1914, during one of the first battles of World War I. The auction was carried out by Knight Frank and Rutley estate agents in Salisbury on the 21st of September 1915, and Stonehenge was lot number 15. The buyer was a man called Cecil Chubb, who paid £6,600 for Stonehenge as a gift to his wife Mary, reportedly bidding for the site on a whim, as he thought it should be owned by somebody local to the area. He had actually attended the auction to buy a pair of curtains. His wife was far from pleased, because the amount he paid was the equivalent today of around £700,000. Three years later, on the 26th of October 1918, 16 days before the end of World War I, Chubb passed Stonehenge into public ownership via a deed of gift. The following year, his enormous generosity was recognised as Prime Minister David Lloyd George awarded him the title of Sir Cecil Chubb, first baronet of Stonehenge. During the 1920s, there was huge concern that Stonehenge may be lost to modern developments, as modern buildings and roads began to encroach upon the ancient structure, so a nationwide appeal to save Stonehenge was launched. In 1927, the National Trust, funded by appeal donations, bought up land around Stonehenge to preserve the site. The buildings that had been built were removed, and it was returned to grassland. The roads, however, remained. In recent years, English Heritage, who manage and maintain Stonehenge today, have welcomed government proposals which were drawn up in November 2020 to construct a tunnel, which would allow much of the busy A303 to the south of Stonehenge to be removed. This plan has faced backlash, however, from a group of archaeologists, environmentalists and modern-day druids, concerned that artefacts that are underground in the area would be lost, or that excavation in the area could destabilise the stones, leading to them sinking, shifting, or perhaps falling over. 
Since the turn of the 19th century, Stonehenge has been restored several times, with the first major restoration of the monument in 1901 being overseen by William Goland. This involved the straightening and concrete setting of Sarsen Stone number 56, which was at risk of falling over. In 1958 the stones were restored again, when three of the standing Sarsens were re-erected and set in concrete bases. The last restoration was carried out in 1963, after stone 23 of the Sarsen Circle fell over. It was again re-erected, and the opportunity was taken to concrete three more stones. Stonehenge has fascinated archaeologists for centuries, and has provided countless finds from all of the periods of the area's use, helping to flesh out the story of Stonehenge, providing invaluable evidence to help us piece together the origins and purpose of this site. The most recent studies came in February 2021, when archaeologists announced the discovery of vast troves of Neolithic and Bronze Age artefacts. This was while conducting excavations for the proposed road tunnel. Bronze Age graves and late Neolithic pottery was found. The following year, in January 2022, archaeologists announced the discovery of thousands of prehistoric pits. This was during an electromagnetic induction field survey around Stonehenge. Based on the shape of the pits and the artefacts that were found within, it's believed that six of the nine large pits that were excavated were made by prehistoric humans. One of the oldest was around 10,000 years old, and it contained hunting tools, which would have once been used by prehistoric man right there. One of the biggest mysteries around Stonehenge is where the enormous sarsen stones had come from. But this mystery was solved in July 2020, when a metre-long core sample extracted from one of the stones in 1958 was returned. Using more advanced analysis methods, led by David Nash of the University of Brighton, it was concluded that the large sarsen stones were a direct chemical match to those found in the West Woods near Marlborough in Wiltshire, some 15 miles or 25 kilometres north of Stonehenge, as 50 of the 52 megaliths were found to match the chemical construction of the sarsens in the West Woods. The smaller blue stones came from the Preseli Hills in the Pembrokeshire Coast National Park in Wales. This is roughly 180 miles or 290 kilometres from Stonehenge. Stonehenge today is not only synonymous with the summer solstice, but with the Druids who flock there every summer to celebrate this special time of year. In August 1905, the first modern day Druids to make use of the megalithic monument was the Ancient Order of Druids. They performed a mass initiation ceremony there when 259 new druids were welcomed into their order. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Between 1972 and 1984, Stonehenge was the site of the Stonehenge Free Festival during the month of June. This was a music festival ending on the day of the summer solstice. This became a huge event, and by 1984 there were around 30,000 in attendance. But after 1985, the use of the site was heavily restricted for almost 15 years. But, just before the new millennium drew in, following a European Court of Human Rights ruling obtained by campaigners such as Arthur Uther Pendragon, who was actually John Timothy Rothwell, a British ego campaigner, neo-Druid leader, and self-declared reincarnation of King Arthur, these restrictions were lifted, and the National Trust worked alongside these groups to once again allow controlled access to the site for the summer solstice. 
In the year 2000, around 7,000 people were in attendance. In the following year, this increased to 10,000. When Stonehenge was first opened to the public, it was possible to walk among and even climb on the stones. But in 1977, the stones were roped off as a result of serious erosion. Visitors are no longer permitted to touch the stones, but they are able to walk around the monument from a short distance away. English Heritage does, however, permit access during the summer and winter solstice, and the spring and autumn equinox. Additionally, visitors can make special bookings to access the stones throughout the year. Local residents are still entitled to free admission to Stonehenge. This is because of an agreement concerning the moving of a right of way. Today nearly 1 million people visit Stonehenge every year, and it's been a UNESCO World Heritage Site since 1986. A site as ancient and mysterious as this has no end of folklore, myths, legends and ghost stories surrounding it. And who better to tell us all about Stonehenge and these ghosts, aliens and even Bigfoot-type creatures who are set to roam here at this incredible iconic landmark than the return of Emma, who runs the Weird Wiltshire blog. Let's hear what she had to tell me when I caught up with her to discuss the stranger side of Stonehenge. And I'm so pleased to welcome back Emma from the Weird Wiltshire blog to the podcast, as who was my first ever polter guest. Welcome back, <laughs> long time no speak, how are you doing? Hi Rob, how are you? Thanks for having me back. I love um, I love the term poltergeist, by the way. Yeah, and I made that up. But I didn't steal inspired. it from anyone. I know. I don't know how I came. it was just one of those things that 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 came. As most people will think that it's terrible, but I love a good. No, one. yeah, no. One. I think it's a good one, um, and I'm honoured to be back. So thank yeah, well, you. who better to have on when we're going to talk about Stonehenge than an expert in all things spooky, strange, and weird at those um, famous rocks? Yes, yes. Well, obviously. When you think of Wiltshire, if you know nothing else about it, you might well know that there's the Stonehenge. And you'll see it, anyone that comes from sort of the southeast to the southwest for a holiday, you will definitely hit a traffic jam as you travel past the stones. So, um, yeah, most people are aware of them, I think. And interestingly, although there's lots of stories associated with the stones, I found a while ago that no one's actually ever collated them together. So that has been one of my Weird Wiltshire missions, is to get all of the weird stories from Stonehenge uh, and put them in one place. And um, here we are. So who better to get on than one of the world's leading experts, by the sounds of it, on all things spooky Stonehenge? (laughs) Yes, thank you. Anybody listening to this up until this point will know a bit about the history of Stonehenge and the fact that there's so many mysteries surrounding it. I think a lot of it comes down to just how old it is and the fact that why was it built? Yeah, I mean, I am no archaeologist or don't have a degree in history or anything like that. But even those that do still cannot seem to agree on what the purpose of Stonehenge was. And obviously it being, they don't even know when it was actually built, but no. let's say two two and a half thousand AD, there were obviously no written records or um, anything like that. So it, anyone's got a guess as to what it's for, but there's, I mean, there's lots of ideas. Um, the main one being some sort of burial land or burial site because this is a fact that I blew me away when I found out about it. There's over 300 barrows within two miles of Stonehenge. I mean, that is a lot of burial sites. And for anyone that doesn't know what a barrow is, it's a prehistoric site where people would bury, I guess, the most important people of the land. Um, And they're all over Wiltshire like little humps on the ground. I've spoken about them before, be out walking the dog or my years gone by, used to be riding horses and there you just come across these barrows and you drive past Stonehenge, you'll see them. They're all over the place. So, so, I mean, to me, that lends towards it being certainly a burial site. Other people say it's some sort of ceremonial meeting place, which is 
a definite possibility. Others have said a Roman clock or calendar, but of course it was built long before then. Yeah. So, but that's not to say it wasn't an ancient observatory. Whoever did build it back then must have had very great skills in maths and geometry because they've aligned the stones, as you've mentioned, so that it hits the sunrises come through the stones at both midsummer and midwinter solstices. But it's also aligned to with the most northerly setting and the most southerly rising of the moon as well. Oh, wow. So astronomically, I think that's the right word, whoever did that, I mean, they were very much ahead of their time. It's incredible um, to think. I mean, it's such a, an iconic location. And the mm. fact that I think one of the fascinations for me is the same as any of, I mean, the, the fact that I do a, a podcast about ghosts, anything unknown mm. and mysterious appeals to us, you know, something where we don't know why it was built. And I mean, I guess that's why it lends itself so well to all of the strange stories that surround it, the folklore, the myths, the mm -hmm. legends, and all of the other odd occurrences that are said to have happened there. So from a folklore point of view, I know that you've got some stories that you've mentioned. Yeah. So the main one seems to be, there are lots of different stories. There's always, with all these ancient sites, somebody has to slip the devil in there as being involved in the building of it. But um, we'll move past that one for today. Um, so this is the Night of the Long Knives, which is a term that was actually then used for some sort of night with uh, where Adolf Hitler, I believe, got rid of some of his Nazi commanders. But it seems there was a night, the night of the long knives before that. Um, so we head back to a time when the Romans have abandoned Britain and left it in political turmoil. And the chieftains of the ancient Britons are all sort of fighting amongst themselves to gain control of of well, it wasn't England then, but sort of the lower part of the country. And there was someone called Vortigern, and he was the lord of, and excuse my pronunciation here, Wirt Gensenberg. Um, and he basically um, came along and got the ear of one of the three young princes who were left when the Emperor Constantine died. So there was Constans, Ambrosius, and Aurelianus, and Uther Pendragon, who you whose name you might recognise. Yeah. So Vortigern, he was a warlord who basically got himself into power through duplicity and skullduggery. And not content with having the ear of the king, he decided he wanted to be king himself. So he basically married Constance's mum. He basically decided he wanted to be king and he needed some warriors on his side and heard about some people that had landed in Thanet in Kent. And this was the Saxons, uh, Hengist and his brother Horsa. So Vortigern took them on side. They invited him into the fold and basically said to him, you help me fight off everyone else and you will get great riches. You can have the island of Thanet that was at that point. There was actually a causeway which separated it from the mainland. Hengist was himself not a very honest guy and said, yes, yes, I'd like that, of course, wink, wink. Um, but in the back of his mind, was he was going for domination of this lovely land where they'd come from in Germany, it was under famine. So um, they came to England and obviously Kent, the Garden of England, and wanted to settle there. So the long and short of it is, Vortimer, who was Vortigern's son, became incensed after he married Hengist's daughter, Rowena, because Vortimer's mum had basically been dumped. So... Vortimer and Vortigern then went off to war, which left Hengist ready to make his move. And the British, the country went back into war 
Um, the ancient Britain leaders who were left despaired and, and decided to send a messenger to Hengist's camp to ask for a parley, which I know is a pirate term, but... I know it from Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> Same as probably <laughs> everybody else. Yeah. And they met up on, they decided to meet on Salisbury Plain. The Hengist said, right, we're going to go without weapons. We're going to meet the ancient Britons. And the idea was that they would form a circle of unity. Um, and with clever words, they may find a way to live uh, peacefully together. So Hengist agreed that he was a liar. And he was a wicked man. And he told his warriors to tuck their long knives into their boots and when they were there within the circle and the festivities had begun and they were all about to sleep, he would signal by saying nemet sexes, which basically means pull out your sex, which is your long knife, and cut the throat of whoever's next to you. Now, on this particular night, obviously the ancient Britons couldn't fight back because they didn't have their um, weapons with them. And so 350 of them were slaughtered um on the mount of i think it's arambris which is supposed to be near a amesbury and that's obviously just down the road from stonehenge and this is basically where all the ancient britons so they were killed off there was no one to go up against hengist and um he did spare the life of Vortigern due to his marriage um but he was banished away and this was the start, this sort of spelt the start of the Anglo-Saxon rule across Britain. Obviously, this is folklore. So whether there's actually any full truth to it or not, I don't know. Just to put that out there, anyone who knows their history. So Hengist continued to rule the land. But obviously, we've forgotten the two younger brothers, Ambrosius, Aurelius and Uther Pendragon who then returned back from the shores of France to reclaim the ancient lands of the Britons. Hengist was slayed in battle eventually, and it was Ambrosius, before he wanted to sort out who would be the king of the land, he wanted to head up to Salisbury Plain and honour all his kinfolk, I suppose, and he wanted to build a suitable memorial for the slain Britons on the barrow where they'd all been buried. And this is where supposedly Stonehenge is. So various people were called in to build some sort of structure and, and uh, Ambrosius was never happy. And then he heard on the grapevine that there was this great magician called Merlin who would build something that would properly honour them. The lands were scoured for Merlin until he was eventually found and brought back to Stonehenge, well, what would be the site of Stonehenge. He looked around, he said to the king, I know exactly what you need. And then we head on to the story of where Merlin travels to Ireland to somewhere called Giant's Dance. And there was said to be a stone circle there whose stones were so magical that if the water that the stones had been washed in was drunk, it would cure the sick. And Merlin had used his magical powers to dance the stones down the side of the hillside and down to the sea and was able to load them onto ships and get them over to the coast of Britain where they were sailed up the Avon and then danced again over onto Salisbury Plain. And um, interestingly, what I found earlier was a fact about apparently in prehistoric times, they think that sarsen stones were dead spirits were encapsulated within these stones and therefore they can walk, dance and sing. And it makes me think of if Merlin's making these sort of stone spirits dance down the hillside and across the lands over to Stonehenge. And then he uh, sort of whipped them up into a fury, set some on top of each other. And there we have the memorial for um, all the ancient Britons slain on the Night of the Long Knives. Interestingly, it's supposed to be the burial place of Aureolus, Ambrosius and Uther Pendragon, who is actually the said to be the father of King Arthur. 
Yeah, that's where I knew the name from. And I think that's because I mentioned him in my Ghost Trail of Cumbria episodes. Yeah, he gets um, around, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He's got, got links all over the country. But good work, Merlin. It's certainly easier to make stones dance over the land than drag them. Well, yeah, I mean, how did they get them here? This is one of the big mysteries I'm sure that's, you've covered. That's but... it. They're heavy stones, yeah, so yeah. maybe they did have some magical help. Who knows? Who knows indeed? Who knows indeed? And then, of course, there's the ghosts of Stonehenge. And I, I have spoken to a few people recently, told them that I was doing an episode on Stonehenge and that I was going to have a chat with your good self. And people were saying, is that ghosts at Stonehenge? <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't, th- I know, because I think a lot of people see it on TV around the, the summer solstice and see the druids flocking there and know that there's some kind of intrigue around it. But I think a lot of people don't associate it with ghost stories. Um, I suppose the thing is with ghost stories, you are they're seen at night. They tend to be in houses or on roads or places where people might be hanging out um, at night. But there's nobody, generally, there's not really anyone up at Stonehenge at night, except for the security guards, which is interesting. So they are some of the people that have had the weird experiences. And, um, yeah, there's there's... Plenty going on up there um, or has been over the years. And I think a lot of it doesn't seem to be reoccurring. It seems to be one-off reports um, that I've gathered together. So um, in the 50s, there was some sort of, they were described as monk-like, but I wonder if we just call them sort of uh, hooded figures that were seen walking in procession from the King's Barrow Ridge along the avenue that approaches sort of Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. And this person had seen these lights and they jumped up on the hill to have a proper look. And he said it it seemed like, yeah, hoodies figures um, carrying torches in a sort of funeral procession heading to Stones. Because there's burials up there on that ridge, isn't there? Exactly, yeah. Mm. that's um, it, It would all kind of make sense. And then there's... There's been figures seen within the stones. It's the security guards, again, who have seen like a shadow figure. But there's also a little boy who appears to run around the stones in the daytime. And the reason now, we all have to be a little bit careful, don't we, with the old YouTube videos because there's a lot of fakery out there. But this was one that somebody had taken and they only actually caught this sort of shadow figure going in and out on on the edit of the video. It's up there on YouTube. It's an interesting one. Other people say they've seen him as well. I'm not sure. I'll take out the link and put it in the uh, podcast episode description for anybody who wants to take a look. Yeah, Yeah, have a look. Let us know if you think it's a fake. (laughs) Um, So we all know that. But let's let's move on to some of the juicier ones. And this is one from Sir Michael Bruce. And he wrote into the Evening Standard in 1953 to tell of his own personal story. So he was up on Salisbury Plains there with, I suppose it would have been his regiment just before D-Day. So that would be 1945, I think. Um, And they were up there working on the planes, driving around, because obviously it's a really big military area. And they were there were four of them in a jeep and they were driving on the road. I think it was alongside Stonehenge um, and they were approaching a sort of copse of trees on the side. And they saw a silent plane, a little plane come overhead, mm-hmm. duck down and head straight into and crash within the trees. So obviously they were really shocked. They drove forwards. They all jumped out to try and go and find who had crashed into the trees and try and save whoever it was in there. And um, they hadn't seen anything. And the there were the three of three um, three soldiers and their commanding officer. And from within the trees they got a shout, and they went through. And there's the commanding officer looking uh, whitely pale as he was stood in front of what's called the Airman's Cross Stone. And this is a stone that's now actually outside the visitor centre in Stonehenge, but it's it was up there at the time. 
And it was said, Captain Eustace Lorraine and Staff Sergeant Richard Wilson. Um, they were the first to die from an aeroplane accident in 1912 in the Royal Flying Corps. And it was in that spot where the memorial stone was that their plane had crashed. Ooh, okay. So had they seen a ghost plane? Maybe. It's funny that they saw the plane and it and they go into the trees and there's that me- memorial stone in the middle. Yeah, I mean, I mean if the, if it was an actual plane crashing, they'd have found something or there would have been an explosion. So, And it was silent. Scary. No noise. Mm. Um, I mean, there was another young Colonel F.S. Cody, who was a pioneer of military aviation, who also died very nearby up there, nearby that site in an experimental flight as well. So I suppose they could have theoretically seen his plane come down. But I always think when when you get someone like a soldier or a policeman or someone who's very stoic and pragmatic and they give you a report, it almost it almost sort of makes me take it a lot more seriously because they will look for explanations and reasons and facts. Unlike me, I'd probably go straight instantly to the ghost theory overlooking at everything else. So so yeah. that was a really interesting one. And I guess, um, I mean, if... if- it's unlikely that they would intentionally make something up like that because it's going to get ridiculed. Yeah, I mean, if I don't know if you know any army ex-army people or army anyone in the armed forces, but yeah, they would get ripped to shreds. I think if they came home and said we saw a ghost plane. So, and it took him a few years. I know they were in the midst of World War Two, so had better things to do than talk about it. But it took him a few years to actually report it. So um, I thought that was quite an interesting mm, Very one. interesting. Yeah, so um, now this one, I don't know if it's an urban myth or not, but it talks about a group of um, hippies. So obviously Stonehenge has been a hippie favourite for many years. Yeah. There was the Stonehenge Free Festival up there, and now after Margaret Thatcher decided she didn't want anyone partying, it carried on as a sort of place where a lot of people celebrate the solstice, but it's definitely, even to this day, there are lots of what you call new age travellers living up there in their vans and caravans up on the drove. And it's always been a sort of hippie centre point, if you like. So in 1971, you could wander up to the stones. They weren't sort of fenced off as such. There was a group of campers who decided to pitch their tents there one night. An intense thunderstorm blew across Salisbury Plain that night and there was lightning that struck the local trees and even struck some of the stones themselves. And there were two witnesses to this event, a farmer and a policeman up there. And they said an eerie blue light illuminated the stone circle and it was so intense that they had to sort of look away and they heard, but they heard a screaming noise coming from within the stones like people and they ran to their assistance. But when they got there, all they found was a smouldering campfire and some smoking tent pegs and even the tents, the people were gone, the tents were gone and they were never seen again, these group of people. Oh, creepy. That's really creepy. And it's weird, actually, because as I talk about these stories and as I pull them all together, there are like some things that sort of seem to link some of the ghost stories. So so one of the ones that was suggested as a possibility of why this might happen have happened to this poor group of campers is that because of the sort of energy of the storm and the fact that Stonehenge is on 14 ley lines and it's also such an ancient monument of which we don't know the purpose of could that storm have been rolling in created some sort of a vortex so have again well out of our sort of scientific knowledge at the yeah. moment but could they have just disappeared into another dimension where are they did this even happen I don't know <laughs> And when when was what? Yeah, what year was this meant to be? Nineteen seventy-one. Nineteen seventy-one. Who knows? Who knows? And in fact, 
the 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 crackling noises the electrical sort of buzz up there is something that um security guards have mentioned so they're up there all night because they have to try and keep people out of the stones yeah. and they've heard voices they've heard whispering and singing um and one of them reported that he at times had heard a sort of strange humming noise coming from the stones and that you can somehow this sort of strange electrical charge that can crackle at times and he'd had electrical shocks up there that's interesting so, yeah i'm intrigued um, by anything any strange noises i've watched a youtube video recently talking about youtube videos mm. where there was a it was i think it was in like texas or somewhere like that and there was just there was a thunderstorm going on and there was a a scream coming from within the sky Ooh. and it was it had a natural explanation. I can't remember what the natural explanation was, but it was a totally natural occurrence. But anybody watching this video or anybody who was there at the time, it must have been absolutely terrifying. It just sounded yeah. like a monster or the devil screaming and it yeah. filled the sky right across whatever American city this was. But I think anything like that where there is an unusual noise, like a, a hum noise or whatever it is coming from the stones may mm. well have some kind of natural explanation that we just can't comprehend. Who knows? Well, it must be great to be a security guard there, though. Yes, I mean, I think so. I think it would be pretty bleak for most of the year because it's very open up there. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it wouldn't be boring, would it? I'm sure you get plenty yeah. of people trying to creep in and things going on. I was just thinking um, about being able to do an investigation every night while getting paid for it. I mean, there is something interesting. I've only seen a tidbit of this and I haven't dug into it yet, but apparently um, Salford University decided to do a bit of investigating with Stonehenge and they set up, it was a perfectly sort of replicated Stonehenge in a wind tunnel environment in an aircraft hangar and they they put the wind through it and apparently the stones gave out a, low frequency acoustics which would match that of a big spooky cave and apparently it, it could have it would cause people to have disturbing auditory sensations oh interesting so there could be some sort of scientific explanation for the sounds up there i guess it could be but let's just say it's probably ghosts it's probably nothing to do with science whatsoever yeah and that's where we leave our conversation with emma for this week but don't worry there's plenty more to tell including more ghost stories aliens floating around and even a bigfoot monster and you'll hear it all next week Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at @howhauntedpod, or over on Instagram at howhauntedpod, where you'll see photos galore relating to Stonehenge. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com, or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback location suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome feel free to ask me any questions you like and i'll answer them all on a dedicated q a episode if you'd like to support the show you could sign up to one of three patreon tiers they start at as little as one pound if you'd like to get early access to weekly episodes as well as access to exclusive episodes where you can join me on an actual paranormal investigation and hear the audio as it happened you can gain access right now for less than the price of a pint and there's nine episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. There's also a tier where not only do you get all of that but you can get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch including a mug and a t-shirt as well as join me on an actual paranormal investigation via live stream and talk to me throughout. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod to find out more. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to support the podcast, 
why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in this podcast episode description and over on the website. I'm running a competition where two winners can win a signed copy of one of my new books. There's a copy of Illustrated Tales of Northumberland, which was released back in February, and a copy of Paranormal Northumberland, which was released in May of For Grabs. In July of 2023, I will be walking 28 miles to raise money for Cancer Research UK in memory of my dear friend John, who lost his battle in 2017, aged only 34. To enter this competition, as well as supporting the charity, if you can afford to do so, please consider heading over to justgiven.com forward slash page, P-A-G-E, forward slash walk for, that's the number four, John with an H, 2023. That's justgiven.com forward slash page, forward slash walk for John 2023. The link is in this podcast episode description. And if you can afford to sponsor me, please do so. Then just drop me an email at rob at how-haunted.com and I'll pop your name in the hat. I'll pick the winners at the end of July and then ship the books out anywhere in the world. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time, we continue our investigation into the ghosts of Stonehenge as I conclude my interview with Emma from the Weird Wiltshire blog. Join me to hear what she had to tell me next week, when we continue to look at Stonehenge. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? I've seen a UFO. Oh, you have?